Great to see you today. And what, what does Talia mean? A do of God. Do of God. So today is a perfect day for that. <laughs> yeah, you sure do. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for this special little girl. She's such a gift, and she's um, from you, obviously. And we look at her, and we watch her, and see her enthusiasm, and her love, and her her joy and the potential that's in this little girl, that you can work in her life in a way that makes the world so much better place. It already is. And we believe that you have special plans for her. So, Lord, we want to ad- admit right up top, she belongs to you. She, you've loaned her to our world and to her family. And I pray, God, that her parents and her big sisters and brethren, that everyone in her life will be reminding her constantly of what a gift she is, how special she is, and that she will live her life knowing that she is your child first and foremost. So God, do in her life amazing things. Help her to always know that she's loved. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You don't like long prayers, huh? We were friends just a minute ago. Yeah. (laughs) Trinity, you're not getting enough attention? (laughs) Two beautiful little girls. Whoa. Okay, you're done. Yeah. Say thank you. Bye bye. Bye, Trinity. Give me five. Nice. Oh, here's this. I'm going to throw it to them. They can't go out the back because of, of the rain. So I told them nobody will mind seeing those little girls for a couple seconds. And it's way more important than anything I have to say for sure. So we're studying through the book of 2 Samuel. We've come a long ways with David since he became king. You know, in 1 Samuel, we saw his adventures as he's running for his life, as, as King Saul, who he loved like a father, yet Saul wanted him dead. It was miserable, really. He had to live in caves in the wilderness on the run. Now Saul, in Second Samuel, Saul has died, along with Saul's son Jonathan, who was David's best friend. Now David has, we've seen him establish his kingdom. He, you know, he established Jerusalem as the capital, He's now the leader over the 12 tribes of Israel. The nation is now unified, and he's brought the Ark of the Covenant back, and the tabernacle's there in Jerusalem. He's built a house for himself. He's got himself plenty of wives and 
concubines. He's like, okay, we're doing pretty good. We're established. We saw last week, though, lots of war, lots of violence, because it was essential that, as we saw, that David would go out and establish his boundaries, that he would establish and secure his borders so that everyone would know, here's the land that God has given me. He knew God had made it very clear. Here is the outline of what the land that I am giving you, but you're going to have to take it. And so he was, and some of it seemed ruthless. We talked about the fact that that's kind of how borders are established, sometimes through violence. And so he did what he had to do to finally secure the country that God had given him, to finally defend the territory that was his own. And we talked about the fact that for each of us in our lives, there are things that we have to do to find out who am I really? Who has God called me to be? What is my territory? What are my gifts from God? What is my calling? And we talked about in, in the same way that, that uh, David had to do this, sometimes what you have to do is eliminate things that aren't a part of your territory in order to establish the things that are. And for all of us, we have to sooner or later decide, this is not my calling. This is not my problem. And as we eliminate all of the distractions, then all of a sudden a clarity sets in, and hopefully for most of us, we can get to the point where I say, I think I kind of know who I am. I think I know what my calling is. I think I know what my gifts are. I'm beginning to bring into focus with a clarity what my life is supposed to be. And now I can spend most of my efforts doing the things that I'm gifted and called to do and not wasting energy on things that aren't my problem. And we talked about the fact that today there are a lot of people who completely lack any sense of boundaries because of of our modern technology Everyone thinks everything is their business. But there are a whole lot of things that might even be important. But if they're not my business and I waste time on those, then it takes away from what it is that ultimately I'm supposed to be doing with my life, burning up energy for nothing. So we saw at the end of chapter 8 that David is finally at the point where the territory is established. He knows who he is. He knows what he's supposed to do. But now in chapter 9, an interesting story gets plopped right in, where you would kind of expect, he knows who he is, now what does he do? But all of a sudden he deviates, and in chapter 9, he recalls his friendship with Jonathan, and he finds out that Jonathan has had a son, and he begins to address and to assist him, Mephibosheth. And so let's just go on and look through this short chapter and see what happens and then see what we can draw from it. David asked in verse 1, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Put it into perspective. And a lot of times when we tell the story of Mephibosheth, we forget this. This is like a long, long time after Jonathan is dead, after Saul is dead, after David is ruling. It took him a long time to get to the point where he starts thinking, hey, I was just thinking, 
Does Saul have any relatives? Is there somebody that I can help? But it's good, it's better to ask that question and, and probably safer to ask it now than it would have been back then. And so there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And when he, they had called him to David, and David's like, hey, Ziba, I know you worked for Saul. And he said, oh, I'm at your service. And the king said in verse 3, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? He said, I want to do something special if there are any relatives left of Saul's. Now, nobody's walking around bragging about being a relative of Saul. I mean, that could be a death sentence in their culture. You didn't want to leave anyone who survived from the previous administration because they will ultimately try to come after you. But he asked the question and Ziba said, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Mephibosheth had been injured, his legs, his feet or his legs were injured when he was a little baby and Saul died and the servant ran with him because, you know, usually when you take over a country, you kill all the relatives of the ruler, that way they're not a threat to you. So Mephibosheth was rescued as a kid, but in the process, he was injured. And so he said, it's, it's almost like Ziba's going, but you don't have to worry about him, he, he can't walk. But the king said to him, where is he? And again, at this point, it's like, okay, whatever. It's the way we do things. But Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Mahir, the son of Amael in Lodabar. Lodabar was up as far away from Jerusalem as you could get almost, up in the northeastern corner of the territory. He's like right on the border. And that's where he lives. And King David sent people to go to the house of Machir. And when Mephibosheth, in verse 6, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself because he couldn't walk. No, I'm just kidding. He just did to humble himself. And, you know, I thought there was one guy that laughed really loud when I said that first service. I go, second service will think it's funny, but apparently it's just not funny. It's just funny. It's funny to me. I apologize. And he answered and said, here's your servant. When David said, Mephibosheth. So David, verse 7, said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness. I mean, it's a good reason. Don't worry, because Mephibosheth at this point figured, I knew it would happen sooner or later. They found me and now I'm dead. And he goes, no, I want to show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? He said, You know what? Your dad owned property, and your grandpa did too. And you're the only heir left, so people have come in and taken all their stuff. I'm going to give it all back to you. I am going to restore you to honor the legacy of your grandpa and your dad, who both of whom were special to me and to our nation. He said, I'm going to give you all of that back. I'm going to give you the inheritance that should have rightfully been yours. And then he's like, wow. And the king called to Ziba, who had been Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to 
Mephibosheth, your master's son, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest, that your master's son may have food to eat. He said, I'm putting you guys in charge of managing his estate, working his field. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, so he had a considerable uh, amount of employees, but there was plenty of work for all of them, and they were going to do that work to provide for Mephibosheth and his family. But you might go, well, he sounds like Mephibosheth's going to live with David all the time. So how would this guy work to feed Mephibosheth if Mephibosheth's eating here? But the, the saying where he says, he shall eat bread at my table always, is probably a colloquialism that means, I just want you to remember, my door is always open to him. He is always welcomed here. He probably set up a guest room for him. And he's like, he's sort of letting Ziba know, don't worry, he can talk to me whenever he wants. And so it was, he has, a, has a, an open pass to come to my house. So Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servants, so will your servant do. This works out good for Ziba, his kids, his servants. Now they have a job. There's a, a pretty much now a large family business from all of Saul's you know, heritage that now Ziba gets to be a manager of it. And so he was happy. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. He's probably sending a message to Ziba that says, be careful how you treat him and his family because he has access to me. As far as I'm concerned, he's a member of my family. And so then Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mekah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem. That is, he had a, he had a house in Jerusalem. He had a place, for he ate continually or consistently at the king's table. He was always a part of David's family, even though he obviously had his family up where his property was. And, uh, you know, he had a large company and it was supporting him and his family as well. And finally mentions again, and he was lame in both his feet. He was still disabled, but now all of a sudden he has been enabled by receiving a business that will support him and his family. And he has amazing access to the throne room. He has amazing, he, the King David in all of his glory is saying, he's like family to me. So quite a great story, especially when you consider the timing of the story. Like there's a reason why one chapter follows another. When we saw in chapter eight that David was almost brutally establishing his boundaries He was deciding, what defines my life? Who am I and what am I supposed to do? David's basically fulfilling the whole original dream of, what am I going to be when I grow up? And God had given him clear instructions as to who he was going to be, how he was going to do it, and he was ruthlessly taking possession of that which belonged to him from God himself. 
So he did that, and we talked about the fact that every one of us has to do that. I have to figure out, okay, there's a lot of things that I, have, I care about, but which of those things are the things that are really my business, that are really something that I can do something about? Because I don't want to waste my life doing things just because they're, you know, I care about them. Like, uh, I mean, today that's so easy with the internet and everything to be, be like, you know, oh, I'm constantly reading what's happening. I'm getting notifications on my phone, on my watch, on my iPad. Like, I can't do anything without somebody telling me what happened over here. And I'm like, I may care about a prisoner exchange, but it's like, did that happen because I knew about it? Or does it not happen because I might think it's a dumb idea or whatever? It's like, I have an opinion, but it's not my problem. Nobody called me to ask me, okay, what kind of a trade should we work up? (coughs) You know, the soccer world games. It's a big deal. They do it every four years. As far as I'm concerned, it's fine. I mean, sure, if the U.S. ever won, I'd be excited. But I can't relate to a sport where like we celebrate a zero zero game and like yeah this is the best us has ever done ever and but i understand it's sure i'll cheer if we win if we lose i'm not jumping off a building it's not my it's not my issue it's not my problem now when the dodgers wash out of the playoffs that's different and by the, by, by the way somebody this was on my pulpit this morning and i'm assuming somebody gave it to me as a gift um, if not, they did, because they <laughs> left it up here. But no, every one of us has to figure out, like, what are the things that I am actually involved in? And how do I hone my focus and my giftedness to say, you know what? I know who I am. I know the place that God has for me, and I am securing that by eliminating things that are a complete waste of my time and my effort. And so David had done that in the previous chapter. But he isn't rigidly legalistic about it. He could have very easily thought, whatever happened to Saul's relatives, it's not my problem. It isn't something that is within the sphere of what I am supposed to be doing. I have a country to run. I have a nation to defend. I have psalms to write. I have whoever I am and whoever I am as an administrator and an organizer to all of a sudden look into, hey, whatever happened to Saul's relatives was outside the box. But that reminds us that you can never live your life with a pure discipline of I never go outside my giftedness. So, I mean, there, in fact, that robs you of some of your life when you become that legalistic. I mean, I, I go, yesterday I spoke for the men's breakfast, and I always have a great time when I do it, but, you know, I taught. And I go, when I'm teaching the Bible, I feel like, yeah, this is kind of what I feel like I was born to do. You may have a different opinion. But, you know, but then afterwards, we're picking up tables and chairs, and I'm helping with that. Not because I think that that's what God wants me to do also. Sometimes you just do stuff. You know, there may be people who feel like all I was able to do for God all week was help set up or tear down an event. And that's awesome. 
But we always need to kind of, you know, cross disciplines because if we are willing to be distracted from our main calling, it shows that there's a freedom. It shows that we're not just enslaved to, that's not my job. That isn't the mentality. So this comes up all of a sudden. Now, it's interesting that what happens is, you know, David is here, he's established, things are good, and now he starts to remember. And now he begins to reflect on his whole life. Now, you know, usually when you hear people talk about, you know, David and Jonathan and Mephibosheth, it's, you get the impression that Jonathan died, David mourned him, and said, I, he was, I liked him more than women and all this kind of stuff. And then he looked for, is there any descendant? Let's find, I want to bring Mephibosheth in. But have a perspective. When Jonathan died, Mephibosheth was a baby. At this point, he's a grown man with his own kids. And if you're a Mephibosheth, you'd be like, I'm glad to hear from you, David, but it's been a while. I mean, you have been the king for quite a while, did you never even think of Jonathan? Did you ever even think that he might have others? This wasn't bang, bang. This was David's deliberate reflection. Being able to reflect on our past is a hugely powerful and necessary capacity. And especially when we talk about reflecting on a time that was incredibly painful for us. See, when we go through pain... It's awful. And really, when we move forward, we want to forget the pain. But unless we can, in our imagination, take ourselves back to a point of pain and find out, was God there at all? Was there anything there that helped me through? That becomes incredibly important because I can now come to terms with my pain from the past because I acknowledge there were these bright spots as well. And, and I think that's what David does. It's like, boy, it feels good. Killed all the right people, established the borders, everything's set. Boy, when was a dark time in my life? And the truth is, in the darkest time of his life, Jonathan was there for him a couple times. Now, Jonathan let him down incredibly because you'd think, you're my best friend. You're going to stay with me. Nope. Jonathan chose to work for his dad. Jonathan chose to be a part of the army that was trying to kill David. But in David's, the depth of his despair, he's in the wilderness. Jonathan showed up and strengthened his hand in the Lord. People aren't perfect. They just aren't. But God uses people at strategic points in our lives to get us through the hard parts. And then the only way that I can be at peace with my past is to remember that it wasn't all dark, that there were bright spots that happened. And so, again, it's decades after David has become king that he finally is able to sit down and think, let me go way back. One of the, now, David was surrounded by guys who had been loyal to him, who had fought by his side. All of his Joab, all his guys, Abishai, all the guys that, that hung with him in the wilderness, those guys are all around him. They were the ones that helped him accomplish what he had accomplished. But he's going way back 
before that? Who was there? You know, I, I think that we can be simplistic about people in our lives. And as a result, we can end up resenting people because they were there for us at one point, but they weren't there for us later. And I, I tell people sometimes in counseling who are dealing with something from their passion, I go, um, you know, people, most people in your life are like rentals. You know, you, when you rent a car, you take it, you use it, drive. You're glad you had that car. I, I remember when Ann and I and the boys were on a Hawaii cruise one time, and we were at the Big Island, and I rented a convertible uh, Mustang, and we drove all around the island. And I remember that was, it was just such a rich time with the kids. And I took them hiking up on the up on the volcano, and there was lava flowing, and I let the boys stand there with one foot on one side of a lava flow and the other on the other so they could see lava flowing between their feet. Anne had stayed at the car. But um, <laughs> it's like, I don't ever wonder whatever happened to that car, but that was a blessing for me at a time. There are people in my life who, at the right time, strategically made a difference but I don't expect them to always be there. And so often we forget the good because we remember Jonathan as the guy that chose his dad over us. We remember a person because although they had done a lot of good for us, at some point they failed us. People are really like this with exes, somebody they were dating or somebody they were married to or whatever. It's like you cannot get over the pain that came from them eventually not being there And as a result, you forget that they were actually a blessing for a time. Same thing for people who have loved ones who die. It's like you can either be thankful that they were there at one point, or you can live in agony because you think your life is over because somebody was there and now they aren't. And a healthy perspective almost always depends on our, every once in a while, doing some reflection. Because When I think of a dark time in my life, I also have to think of, how did I get through that? Was there anyone there at that time who, yeah, maybe later they weren't there. So what? They got me through that step. They represented God to me because they came at the right time. And then they were a rental. So they kind of fell out of my life. Can I be grateful for that? Because in the end, It's not about people. It's about God using people at the right time. So, I mean, for me, some of the people who have hurt me the deepest in my life are also some of the ones who, and in fact, it almost always works this way. When somebody's really useful and beneficial and a blessing to you, they have a greater capacity to end up injuring you. But a healthy perspective is, okay, I'm comfortable where I am. My life is coming together now. Am I able to reflect back and say, you know what? There are people that God used to bless me in a special way. And that's what I really see him doing. Now, in order to do this, you also have to decide that, you know, my own self-interest is something that doesn't dictate everything I do in my life. David, by rescuing Mephibosheth and restoring him, was taking a risk. This didn't help David at all. David didn't do this so people would go, oh, so nice. Look, he's taking care of that little handicapped kid, you know. He's doing, no, 
He did it, and in fact, this kid could have threatened his throne. In fact, as you, the thing that nobody ever talks about, later on in the book we'll see that at least he's accused by Ziba, who's his right-hand guy, that, that Mephibosheth was trying to cut a deal with David's son who was overthrowing David and the kingdom, Absalom. And, you know, he told, Ziba at least told David, hey, Mephibosheth's plotting against you. And we don't know if it was true or not. It's suspicious because David went and confronted Mephibosheth and he's like, no. And then it says, David just said, okay, you and Ziba can split Saul's inheritance. Now, that doesn't sound like a guy who's like, I'm absolutely confident in you. I will fire Ziba. He's like, I don't know what the deal is. You guys work it out. So who knows? But the point is, David had nothing to gain. He, he was willing to take a chance outside of his own self-interest because he was that secure in who he was that even though this guy might be a threat to me, and David didn't do this when the kingdom was up in the air. He didn't do it when, you know, when the kingdom was split and it's like, okay, what's going to happen? But now that it's established, it's safe enough for him to take a chance on a guy and to come to terms with some of his history in a way that ultimately we look at it and go, it was a great story. And David was secure enough to take that risk for sure. I see too in this, often when we talk about people who are, um, have various disabilities, we think that we should treat them special because they have a, a different capacity or a different ability than someone else does. But he doesn't say anything about that. It mentions his lame in his feet. But you know what really honored Mephibosheth is that David treated him like a regular guy. He didn't, tre- he didn't come and go, too bad about that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get you a, a great, I'm gonna, we're going to build wheelchair ramps here everywhere and everyone's going to have to carry you wherever you go. No, it's like for maybe the first time in Mephibosheth's life, somebody looked at him and treated him like you would treat anyone else. And just with kindness. And I, you know, I, I've had several friends who have various disabilities, and almost all of them will tell me the thing they want the most is to not be treated like they're disabled, is to be treated like a regular person. I was thinking about that this week. My, my friend Jeff Pfeiffer, who um, he would come to church here, but it was, he lived at Fairview State Hospital his whole life, um, but he would come in a wheelchair and come up here, come to our church, sit down here and make wisecracks while I'm preaching. But he was a dear friend. But I remember him telling me one time, you know, the thing that he liked about me is that I treated him like a regular guy, that I made fun of him, that I insulted him. He was used to people treating him with kid gloves. And he goes, you treat me like a regular person. And his whole life, that's all he wanted. That's all anybody wants. Here, Mephibosheth is just like, It's not because you're disabled. It's because you're the son of your father and grandfather. I'm just doing the right thing. And David didn't open the door. Are there any other disabled people? No, he just, he treated him like a normal person. And he honored him and elevated him as a result. I think every one of us ultimately, 
it is important for us to, as in chapter 8, figure out who I am, what my territory is, get myself clarified and established and know where I'm supposed to be and know that my plan moving forward is to continue to function within the calling and the gifts that God has given me. But every one of us also, I think, has an opportunity and a responsibility maybe personally to ourselves and to others to do some reflecting, to think back, to say, okay, let me think back to a time that was darkest in my life. Was there a sparkle of light that was there at that time? Was there somebody, I don't care if you haven't heard from them since, was there somebody that God used in some way to make a positive difference in your life? And that is something that helps you to redeem your past. You have baggage that you're carrying until you can look at the past and go, God was faithful. And there were people who who were there for me at this point. We all have those people. And if there's a way that you could bless someone who's connected with them, whether praying for them or just respecting them or letting them know, hey, you know, you're... You know, your loved one, your family, your grandpa, whatever, really made a difference in my life. It does something for them and it does something for us as well. I know I don't want to embarrass her, but there's a girl here in the service who's, whose dad and mom were that way with me and now they're both in heaven. But it made a huge difference when my life could have gone anywhere. Because of it, she's really special to me as well. I would, I, I would hate her otherwise, but her family is so awesome. I'm just kidding. But... You know, I think of, you know, in our third service, there's a kid that's been coming here now for um, a couple of months. And he has a, if you ever come third service, you would see he has this um, help, this helper dog, whatever they call him, that's a great Dane. His name's Jethro. Massive, dog's the size of a horse. And he, this guy, has a hard time walking. He struggles, been through a lot. But first time he came, he came up to me and he goes, Dave, you remember me? And I go, no, I don't. He goes, Doug Aloff. I'm like, whoa. This is a kid who was Pastor Romaine's grandson. In fact, and Romaine was special to me in a way that in some ways nobody else ever was. He, He was a true, he shot straight with you. And he would make you mad and then he would humble himself and apologize. He's just, Romaine was an amazing guy. He's been with the Lord for a long time. Doug was his grandson, one of his only remaining relatives. And Doug, when he was in, he goes, remember when you swatted me? And I go, yeah. He, he had come into the office. He got in trouble for something. He was in eighth grade. And back then in the dark ages, you weren't considered to be destroying someone by spanking them. I checked on the statute of limitations. I think I'm okay. But he had this big military jacket on. And when I swatted him, one swat, when I swatted him, I could tell I got too much of the jacket. And I knew he probably didn't feel it at all. He acted like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, I'm like, okay, I'll let you go, especially because you're Romaine's grandson. So he leaves my office and he goes around, and my office had a back door with a window. And I hear Doug out there, and he's telling some other kid, he goes, man, Dave Rolf's got nothing. <laughs> and I opened the door and I grabbed him by that military jacket pulled him into the office, I slammed him, lift him off his feet, slammed him against the wall, I go, you want to find out what I got? And he's like, no, 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 and he's crying and everything. 
But I hadn't heard from anyone in, from Romaine's family almost since Romaine died. But I felt like I'm so blessed that I get to see. And so, you know, we don't usually let people bring horses into the service, but, you know, he gets special treatment because he's the grandson of somebody who really made a huge difference, not in my life, but in a whole bunch of people's lives. I mean, Calvary Chapel would have never been what it was without Pastor Romaine. And so the ability to just encourage and bless somebody like that is something that's healing for me, but it's something that's a blessing, and it's just the right thing for us to make those connections. So I would encourage you today to take a chance. If you feel like your life is falling apart, don't worry. There'll be another time when you can do this. But if you're feeling like, I'm feeling pretty settled. I kind of know who I am, what I'm doing. I would encourage you to just project back into the past a little bit and look for the dark times in your life and ask yourself, who was there? I don't care what they've done to you since. I don't care if they, it's so rude. They don't, I send them Christmas cards and they don't send them back. So what? Were they there in a moment for you? And pray for them. And if you have a chance to talk to them or one of their relatives, let them know, hey, you know, your loved one made a difference in my life. It's, so, it's a way for you to heal a lot of your pain because what you're acknowledging is in the darkest times of my life, God was there. He brought people in. There were rentals. They would come and go. But boy, when they came and strengthened my hands in the Lord, it changed everything. I would encourage all of us to, when we get a quiet moment, to reflect back on the times that we try not to think about anymore and ask ourselves, who was there? Who was it that God brought to us at that time? To me, that's what David did, and it's a great example for us. Let's pray. Lord, we all remember what you did when things were going great. And most of us are at a point where we're like, we've survived. Here we are. Life is not as bad as it has been in the past. Most of us really don't want to spend a lot of energy looking back in our wilderness experiences, looking back through the darkness to find the tiny lights that shined for a period of time in our lives. Lord, help us to have the courage to take that journey. That even though it's going to hurt, perhaps, it's going to remind us of other things, in the end, it's going to remind us that you were always there and you sent flawed people into our lives for a strategic moment. And we're grateful for that. Lord, if there are people here today who have never even come to a, a connection with you at all, or maybe they did a long time ago and it's just like gone, I pray that you will help them to understand you love them. And it's not that you want something out of them. You've always loved them. I pray that people here who have never even believed in you would be able to look back on their lives and realize there were some there were some good things that kept me alive. There were some people who rescued me at the right time and that they would see your hand and that they would want to move forward into the future knowing who you are. 
being connected with you, receiving your grace and forgiveness, and then teaching us how to show grace and forgiveness to our past. So Lord, we just commit all these things to you, and we thank you that whatever we've all been through, we're all here now. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.